Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. And I'm Megan Thielking, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. Damien Gorday and Adam Feuerstein are both away today, so Megan is joining me as this podcast's first ever guest host. Megan, thanks for stepping in. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, without further ado, it's Thursday, October 4th, and here's what's on the docket this week. Three Nobel Prizes were awarded for work that's led to cancer immunotherapies, several drugs, and eye surgery. Stat science writer Sharon Bagley joins us to break down who won and who got snubbed. A growing number of millennials are running healthcare and biotech companies and raising a ton of money while they're at it. Forbes reporter Matt Herper just interviewed a bunch of those millennial founders, and he's going to join us today to talk about what they're up to. And finally, we're going to try out a new type of lightning round. We're going to pepper Matt Herper with rapid-fire questions in which he must pick one of two options, and then we'll ask him to defend his opinion. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? You can get more exclusive coverage from Adam, Rebecca, Damien, and others at STAT with a STAT Plus subscription. STAT Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks to you, our podcast listener, subscribe to STAT Plus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. This has been a busy week in the world of biomedical research. Three Nobel Prizes were awarded for work in medicine, physics, and chemistry. Stat Sharon Bagley has been up bright and early this week covering this year's science prizes. She joins us today to talk about it. Thanks for being here, Sharon. Thanks for having me. So on Monday, the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine went to two researchers, one American and one Japanese, for their discovery that the immune system can be tweaked to unleash tumor-attacking T-cells. Their work led to several cancer immunotherapy drugs. Let's listen to the prize announcement made in Sweden. The Nobel Assembly at Karolinska Institute has today decided to award the, the uh, 2018 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine jointly to James P. Allison and Tasco Honjo for their discovery of cancer therapy by inhibition of negative immune regulation. One of the most delightful parts about the Nobel Prizes is hearing the winners talk about finding out that they won. But in the case of Jim Allison, the researcher at MD Anderson, that didn't exactly go as planned, did it, Sharon? So Allison happened to be in New York City on uh, Monday morning, the day that the prize was announced. And for some reason, the uh, Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences and the Nobel Committee did not have his cell phone, didn't know what hotel he was staying at. And the laureates generally are called uh, a half an hour or so before the public announcement. So he also was not watching the webcast like some of us were. So instead, um, he found out because his son, who's an architect in New York City, was watching the webcast. He heard about it and he called dad. And then within half an hour or so, um, many of the other people at the conference, which happened to be about cancer immunotherapy, were banging on Allison's door and someone had the presence of mind to bring champagne. So there were there were the toasts and bubbly and exploding corks at um, 6.30 in the morning in New York City. Wait, 
Backup, Sharon, how is that possible? Surely someone at the Nobel Committee in this age of zero privacy could have found Jim Allison. You know, Rebecca, I think we have to notice that the Nobel does not give a prize for technology. So apparently they do not even ask their reporter friends how to comb the web, you know, the the databases of cell phone numbers, and they just blew this one. But it makes for a better story, so we're not complaining. That's so true. Another thing that you pointed out, Sharon, was that this Nobel Prize went to those two scientists, but not other crucial contributors to that work. Can you explain why other cancer immunotherapy researchers who were involved got snubbed? Absolutely have to say, first off, that um, Jim Allison and Tasuku Hanjo, who shared the prize, absolutely deserved it. They did amazing work. Allison worked on one receptor called the CTLA-4. Um, Hanjo discovered PD-1, as you said at the top. Both of those have led to just life-changing cancer drugs. But immunotherapy certainly now is an extremely hot field. But even when it was in its earliest stages, in the late 80s and into the 90s, there were a lot of people who were contributing. But the Nobel committees have what's called a rule of three, and that means that no more than three people can be awarded the prize. It was not something that was stipulated in Alfred Nobel's will. Instead, it was something that the committees adopted in 1968. However, they have stuck to it. So you might say, well, two people were awarded the medicine prize. Wasn't there room for three? And the problem there is that if you opened it up to anyone beyond these two, you probably would have had to add two people and possibly three, which would have brought you to four or five. But I think the point here is that the rule of three really is antiquated in an age when science is a group endeavor. It's wonderful that individual scientists are called out. Science loves the Nobel season. You know, they're in the spotlight, uh, a rarity for most of science. But it is not true to how science is done. It's a team effort. So again, if you were to look at the people who were junior scientists working with Allison or Hanjo for the medicine or physiology work in cancer immunotherapy, there would have been a lot of people you could have named. Next up, let's talk about the second Nobel Prize awarded this week. That one was for physics. One of the winners is Donna Strickland, who was honored for laser advances that were turned into the beams that correct nearsightedness. Uh, Strickland is just the third woman ever to win the physics prize and the first since 1963. And there was a fact that got a lot of pickup as sort of a telling symbol of the status of women in science. Strickland isn't a full professor at the University of Waterloo in Canada where she teaches. Sharon, how could that possibly be? You mean we are shocked, shocked that the people who make tenure and promotion decisions at a university do not uh, recognize a woman scientist's work. Um, yes, we are shocked. But in 2018, I think we also have to note that Donna Strickland did not have a Wikipedia page. When people um, made the effort to create one for her, the czars of Wikipedia said, no, she really doesn't have enough high-profile publications, not enough links, you know, in or out. So she didn't deserve a Wikipedia page. You know, and you can't even argue that the work she did was in some backwater of physics or anything. Chirped pulse amplification, the technical term for the laser that she helped develop did become LASIK eye surgery for Pete's sake. So, you know, she is a key contributor to a central part of contemporary optics in physics. And she was actually a 
grad student, right, when she was doing the work that she was honored for? Not only was she a grad student, this was her first published scientific paper. It was in 1985. So, you know, she waited all these years um, for this accolade. But I think looking back, if anyone, you know, thinks after their first scientific paper, it's going to be all downhill from there, that's a little bit depressing. But it all turned out very well for her. But yes, she was honored for work that she did with her mentor, um, Gerard Moreau, um, who shared the prize. Strickland was the grad student. And it is, again, unheard of in, you know, the Nobel awards up until now for the grad students to be honored. In fact, there have been Nobel scandals, controversies, when the grad student who did you know, virtually all of the grunt work under the supervision of, you know, the the older scientist was ignored. The most uh, famous example of that is Jocelyn Bell, who discovered pulsars. Her mentor received the Nobel Prize in physics. She never did. Um, she's received many awards subsequently. So if the Nobel committees are not only asking the nominators to be more cognizant of women scientists who have made key contributions, and they are. The Nobel committees have told the nominators, you know, are you thinking of the women. But if they are also recognizing that science is not done just by, you know, the august 60-year-olds and 70-year-olds, but by the grad students doing the grunt work, I think that's a much more honest and hopeful and, you know, commendable way to honor people. I totally agree. And the last prize, the one that came out on Wednesday, was for chemistry. And that one went to three scientists who were praised for harnessing the power of evolution. They figured out ways to develop proteins that were used in a whole bunch of drugs, including treatments for cancer, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis. Sharon, I know that you had predicted CRISPR was going to win for chemistry on Wednesday. Why do you think it got skipped over in favor of these researchers? So it's possible that for CRISPR, the rule of three that we alluded to for medicine is also getting in the way. And the reason I say that is although there are two clearly key people who developed CRISPR, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier. There are at least two and possibly three other people who have also made key contributions. And I can easily see that the Nobel committees you know, see the nominations for two, three, four, five of these people and don't know how to deal with it. Another possibility is that CRISPR is really, really young. The key Doudna Charpentier paper was in 2012. The subsequent papers by Feng Zhang and George Church were in 2013. So that's a really short time. The Nobel committees always say, you know, we want to be sure that the science is right, that it's been important, etc. And, you know, that's not a judgment call that they apparently feel they can make within a mere five years. As we were saying earlier, the medicine Nobel for the immunotherapy work, that was done in the 80s and 90s. So even though, interestingly, Alfred Nobel's will stipulated that the award go to someone who had made a key scientific breakthrough within the last year, that rule, you know, went by the wayside, you know, back in the Great Depression. So the Nobel committees are looking back decades to honor something. Well, it'll be interesting to see what gets honored decades from now. Sharon, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. For this next segment, we're going to talk about millennials. Rebecca and I are both millennials, so we spend a lot of time and money ordering avocado toast instead of buying houses. Although I'm allergic to avocados, so just buy a lot of regular toast. One thing we are not doing, however, is starting biotech and healthcare companies. Some of our peers, on the other hand, are taking the plunge into entrepreneurship in a space that can stymie even the most experienced veterans. 
Here in Boston this week, the news organization Forbes held its annual 30 Under 30 conference, highlighting millennials who've already made a big impact on their industries. Matt Herper, the science and medicine reporter for Forbes, interviewed a few of those healthcare-focused millennials on stage, and he's here today to talk about it. Matt, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So Matt, tell us which millennial entrepreneurs you interviewed this week and what they're working on. Well, we had a bunch of really impressive uh, entrepreneurs, all alums of the 30 Under 30 list. One really big one was Nat Turner, who is the co-founder of a company called Flatiron that was bought by Roche for $2 billion. They take electronic medical record data and try to make it real like a clinical trial. We also talked to Serbi Sarna, who had a health scare when she was young. She had an ovarian mass and decided that she was going to start a company to detect ovarian cancer. Uh, and that company was sold to Boston Scientific for $275 million. That includes some milestone payments and biobucks. I mean, we had a bunch more, too. We had uh, Luhan Yang, Trevor Martin, who were working on CRISPR, and also uh, Sagal Kadoch uh, from the Dana-Farber here, who uh, has spun out a company out of her lab uh, called Foghorn Therapeutics, which raised like 50 million earlier this year. So, I mean, one thing that is really amazing is the amount of money, as we see everywhere in biotech, that these relatively young people are getting for their efforts. So, Matt, the conventional wisdom is that millennial entrepreneurs think about problems differently in a more innovative and disruptive way compared to their elders. Did you get a sense of that interviewing these millennial founders? I don't know that I I agree that they are necessarily more disruptive. I mean, the biggest change isn't the entrepreneurs. It's kind of the culture around them that allows young people to get their ideas into play so much sooner. Venture capitalists are kind of welcoming to the ideas from some of these young scientists. So I think that's a bigger change than that their ideas are so much more disruptive. One thing that I think that sort of gets at that's surprising about all of this is that there's sort of this common criticism that young people might not have the right experience to run a biotech company. Do you think that lack of experience ends up hurting their companies in any way? It can. We had Martin Shkreli, who did a pretty impressive job starting some biotech companies and flamed out, I think we'd all say, rather dramatically. But there are bad actors at, at any age, and people make mistakes and it's a hard field. One thing you do see is one of the hard choices is, is this young person CEO material or not? And being a scientist or being somebody who started a company doesn't mean that you should necessarily continue to run it. And we saw both sides of that. There was a company called Olydia Health and the founding CEO, Jesse Becker, handed over the reins to a much, much more experienced CEO and she told that story. There's also a company around here called Squeeze Biotech. Their founding CEO, who came out of a lab and was working on the project, was sure he didn't want to be a CEO and was convinced that it was actually the right role for him. So healthcare's most infamous millennial entrepreneur has to be Elizabeth Holmes. Today, she's still just 34, and she's facing criminal charges for massive fraud at Theranos. Do you think there have been any lessons learned from the Elizabeth Holmes fiasco in the way that investors and journalists scrutinize these millennial founders? Certainly we're all trying, right? I mean, I think the hardest thing about the Holmes story, remembering it from people like to look back on it as if no one was skeptical, but there was actually this undercurrent of skepticism. At a previous Under 30 Summit, I asked Elizabeth Holmes, there are a lot of skeptics about your company and 
you know, we haven't seen a lot of data. And she went off on a tangent and kind of a tirade about the lab industry and how they were out to get her. But it's hard to deliver the goods. There is some burden of proof on you when you're saying something doesn't look like it works. So there was kind of this little bit of skepticism that wasn't until someone had all the facts. So I think one thing we all have to learn is to remember that there are always a lot of unknowns. There's stuff we just don't know and to be very careful about that. The other lesson, which I don't know if the money has learned this, the people who invest money, but there's a lot of money out there that is very big, but maybe not so smart. And there are certainly other companies out there who are able to raise money on the private markets, amazing amounts of money. And sometimes it's not even coming from any VC firm or there are no named investors. And I think that's very different from having somebody with a track record putting a big bet on a company. And I think we all have to remember that. It's not just the headline number of how much cash went into something. That's an interesting point. Another interesting thing that we were talking about, Elizabeth Holmes, is that she very famously dropped out of her undergrad program to start Theranos. And a lot of the millennial startup founders don't necessarily have PhDs or maybe they've dropped out of their PhD program before finishing it. Do you think that's a red flag at all? It can be. I can't think of a single um, successful dropout in the healthcare space, actually. There are some who don't have PhDs, but everybody I can think of finished, and most of them, a lot of them, are coming out of PhD programs. Academia turns out a lot more good scientists than it can give jobs. Maybe it's good age where instead of going and working for Amgen, going and starting your own company and trying to change the world, I mean, I, I know which one I'd rather do. So Matt, everyone loves to mock these millennial founders who make the cover of magazines and appear on 30 under 30 type lists. Why do you think this phenomenon prompts so much derision and skepticism, or at least in the sort of insane Twitter bubble in which we reporters live? Well, I think people don't like being threatened by younger people. I think there is also a very fair comment that there is a cultural obsession with youth, and that was part of what made Elizabeth Holmes become Elizabeth Holmes. She was exploiting that. But I also think that there are a lot of good founders who are young, that being young doesn't mean that you're not going to accomplish amazing things. And I've been actually surprised when I started doing this list, I didn't expect to find as many good scientists whose careers I've been able to follow. I think that there is value to to cataloging these people who are entering the industry. You know, Megan, it's never too late for us millennials to start a biotech company. Yeah, let's get on that. Next up, it's time for a lightning round. But we're going to shake things up this week with a new format. Matt's going to be our guinea pig. Can I be a zebrafish? Yes, you can 100% be a zebrafish. So here's how it's going to work. We're going to ask Matt a question, and he has to pick one of two options. For example, we might ask Matt, which is the best pizza topping, pepperoni or veggies? It's veggies. (laughs) So just like that, he must pick one of the two options. There will be no hedging or dodging the question. And then we'll let him explain his reasoning. All right, Matt, are you ready to get started? Absolutely. Okay, first question. This is a softball. What's the better place to do biotech, Boston or the Bay Area? Boston. I went to MIT. I have to say Boston. That's fair. We'll give you that one. Okay, Matt, I've got another question for you. Which industry villain is more morally compromised, Martin Shkreli or Elizabeth Holmes? I've had to answer this before, and it's really hard. I'd say Elizabeth Holmes. I think Martin 
was trying to do things that he was seeing other people do, and he was actually developing drugs. And my feeling about Martin has always been that he took all of the excuses that hedge funds make and all of the excuses that drug companies make, and he combined them into kind of a bigger excuse. But you could see how he kind of lied about it and how he got caught up in this whole media storm. I don't think that excuses a lot of what he did, but we're comparing him to Elizabeth, who I think that she was very deliberately executing a fraud. All right. So now that you're getting the hang of it, we're going to turn to a few questions from the recent news cycle. The Broad Institute recently won its legal fight against UC Berkeley over key CRISPR patents. Which university do you think should have won that legal battle, the Broad or UC Berkeley? I always leaned UC Berkeley. Then I'm going to explain it and say that I don't think it's an important question. Okay, so why don't you think it's an important question? There are a lot of patent fights in biotech. There are fights over who licenses money from who. Until we're at a point where some company is not developing a drug because of these IP rights, I don't think it matters very much. I think the CRISPR companies have freedom to operate, and this is not their real problem. Let's turn to a topic right in Matt's neighborhood in New York City. That's the uproar over industry-related conflict of interest at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. This uproar has had some pretty remarkable consequences. The chief medical officer resigned, the pathology chair is giving up his equity in a startup, a vice president is surrendering compensation from serving on a company board, the CEO just resigned from the Merck board. What do you think, Matt? Is this controversy overblown or warranted? Warranted. So I think that the initial stories that were in the New York Times about Jose Baselga, uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering's chief medical officer, may have been somewhat aggressive. He, he had millions of dollars of conflicts, and a lot of those identified conflicts that they had were actually a single bit of stock that he owned in a startup that got bought by Roche. He also had a lot of undisclosed conflicts, and these conflicts have been a big deal. So I actually think that, that the scrutiny is warranted and that at least some of the steps that seem to be taken are warranted. And I'm surprised that Memorial hadn't thought this stuff through better because we've seen this before. Okay, so switching gears a little bit, Apple recently released a new version of the Apple Watch that comes with a heart monitoring app. And it actually got the FDA's blessing to alert people who might be at risk for an irregular heartbeat. What do you think, Matt? Do you think that's overhyped or potentially helpful? It's definitely potentially helpful. I tend to think more data is good. That's why I've sequenced my genome twice. So on this, I think that they did go through the proper channels, and the question will be how they engage the medical community. Let's get to a more important question. The 80s band UB40 is back in the news this week because of a certain allegedly bar-fighting Supreme Court nominee. Which UB40 song do you think is worse, Matt? Red Red Wine or I Can't Help Falling In Love With You? I Can't Help Falling In Love With You is definitely the worst of the two, but I like them both. Although the best band of the 80s was R.E.M. All right. That was was an answer. Yeah. (laughs) Matt, this has been very informative, to say the least. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So that does it for another episode. Before I sign off as your guest host, I have to shamelessly plug Morning Rounds, my daily newsletter about health and medicine. You can sign up for that and all of Stat's newsletters at statnews.com slash sign up. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. 
Matthew Orr is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this episode, tell us what you didn't like, and tell us who should be the next guest we bring on to answer rapid-fire questions. We truly do appreciate the feedback, so thank you, and see you next week.